So we're going to continue our <clears throat> study on how to build battle-ready faith from the book of Joshua this morning. Today we'll be in chapter 9. And so as always, I encourage you to grab your Bibles and open up to uh, that particular passage. And just by way of reminder, chapter 9 takes place right after uh, chapter 8. Actually, <laughs> just kidding. Right after Jericho and Ai had uh, both uh, been defeated, uh, these were uh, two uh, towns guarding the southwest passage into Canaan, and now they've been annihilated. And so keeping that in mind, it makes sense what we read as we move into chapter 9, uh, starting in verses 1 and 2, says this, Now it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and, uh, and on all the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard of it. Then they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. Father God, we thank you for uh, just the opportunity to be able to worship together this morning, uh, being able to be encouraged by being together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and now to be encouraged by your word and God to uh, receive that encouragement that comes from the Holy Spirit as he works in and uh, through our hearts. God, we just open ourselves right now to whatever you would desire to do in us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so back when we first started this series on Joshua, I referenced uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. The, the Apostle Paul was teaching the Christians in the city of Corinth by, by using a portion of Scripture from the Old Testament book of Numbers. And, and some of the current Christians today, you know, they, they think that we should really only focus on the New Testament since that's specifically uh, the place where we learn about Jesus Christ and, and the church and, and, and what he has for us there. But Paul, speaking to these New Testament Christians in Corinth, says this about the Old Testament. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages has come. These, these verse, this verse here lets us know that we can be confident that what we uh, read and learn in the Old Testament is relevant and practical and, and has application for us today in our lives. And, and I think we've seen that as we've been going through Joshua, but I think uh, today in particular, it's going to be very obvious in the story that we look at in chapter 9 because the example that we see today teaches us several lessons about the way that Satan tries to work in our lives right now. So if you have ever been tripped up by Satan, uh, you might want to catch this stuff that we're looking at uh, today. Uh, to me, one of the, the greatest, most comforting promises in the Bible is that God is constantly at work in our lives. Philippians 1.6 declares, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it or complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. The moment that you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh, God began a good work in you. And He's going to keep on working on that day in and day out until that time when Jesus comes back. And then at that time, He doesn't have to work on it anymore because the Bible declares we will be 
perfected in Christ. And so that's just an awesome promise. But the flip side of that promise is also true. The moment you got saved, you acquired an enemy. And Satan is also at work. And as Christians, we we have to understand that truth. In fact, the Apostle Paul, again, writing in another letter, but to these same uh, Christians in Corinth, said, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And now that verse lets us know that, yes, we do in fact have an enemy, and he is scheming and working against us. But we are not ignorant, or at least we do not need to be ignorant about the way he works. And that brings us to Joshua 9, because what Israel encountered there is a perfect picture or example of the way that Satan attempts to work in our lives right now. So Joshua 9 opens up uh, with those verses we read there about a bunch of kings joining forces to stand up and fight against Israel. And, and you got that whole list of, uh, of all of them there in verse 1, you know, the Hittites and Amorites and Canaanites and Perizzites and several otherites that were joining together and, and, uh, to fight. And you've got to remember that back then, a country or a kingdom was generally a very small uh, bit of territory, not usually what we think of uh, today. Um, there were a few empires uh, back through Bible times that covered large territories, that type of thing. But most countries were really more of what we would call a city-state uh, type of uh, uh, empire. And they weren't generally much bigger than hot springs. A few weeks ago when we were looking at Jericho, I had mentioned that the, the walled-in portion of the city, the, the city proper of Jericho, was only about the size of about nine or ten football fields. That, that's as big as the city was. But the king of that city would have ruled over a territory that was about as big as the area of Hot Springs. And by that I mean if your postal address is a Hot Springs address, about that big. So, you know, uh, going out north towards Wing Cave Park where the Molars live and, and south down... Uh, 71 towards the Cheyenne River and out to Maverick Junction and this type of thing, that would have been uh, the one kingdom. And, and Jericho would have been the concentration in the main city and outside the walls would have been a lot of people living. And then here and there scattered about would have been small villages, you know, 8, 10, 20 houses packed together because back then, you know, two, three miles away, that was a long distance and you might grow up in that little village and maybe only make your way to Jericho once in your lifetime type of thing. And so that's the way these little country states were. And then Edgemont, you know, would be its own kingdom and king and there and Custer would be another one. And I don't know, maybe even Buffalo Gap would be, a, you know, a little, a little kingdom. But you, you get the idea. That's the, the, the way it would be. Uh, and, and after hearing uh, uh, and seeing what the, the Israelite army had done to Jericho and Ai, then all these various kings decided, man, there's, there's no fooling around with these guys. We better join up forces so that we can build a, a big enough army to defeat them and stand against them. And that that's what we have being described in what's going on in verses 1 and 2. And no doubt, uh, this combined army was responsible for who knows how much
much debate and discussion in the Israelite camp, right? It, you know, it was one thing for them to be able to go up against an individual city at a time and, and conquer them, but would they be able to handle the joint forces of all those kings? How would that work? What would God do? And you don't have to use very much imagination to realize, I mean, this would have been a hot topic amongst all of the fighting men and their families, their wives, and, and, and all of this type of thing, right? Up to this point, the inhabitants of Canaan had been on the defensive. But now we see them forming a united federation in order to make an attack on God's people. And you better believe that it had the attention of all of Israel, right? I mean, certainly everybody was talking about it as they're, you know, standing in line at Starbucks waiting for their coffee. They're like, man, did you hear about these guys? That's a scary thing. What are we going to do? How's this going to work? That's what they're going on. But then as you keep reading, you see that's not what chapter 9 is about at all. The author uh, sets us up for this intriguing battle and then he goes in a completely different direction. Look at how the story continues in verse 3. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they also acted craftily and set out as envoys. The implication, of course, is that these other kings were pretty crafty in joining their armies and, and forming an alliance to combine their forces to, against Israel, but there's more than one way of being crafty. In Gibeon, chose a different path. Now they were, uh, Gibeon was a, a major city in Canaan at the time. It was described uh, as, as being like one of the royal cities, which meant that it was larger, richer, and more luxurious than, than most towns. And, and we're told that all the men of that city were, were mighty men, which means they had a well-trained uh, and, and feared army. Uh, the town itself was located about five miles northwest of Jerusalem, which meant it was a little bit over 50 miles away from where the Israelites were camped at Gilgal. And uh, 50 miles back in those days was far enough away that Joshua would not have known about these people. He would not have known uh, what was going on and what was happening in there. There was no reconnaissance drones uh, sending back information to him from these great distances. He was worried and concerned about those nearby enemies one step at a time as he was moving through the promised land. So he didn't know about these guys over there. Um, God had given Joshua very strict orders on how to deal with the inhabitants of Canaan. And those people were under God's judgment. We looked at that a few weeks ago for their extreme wickedness. And in Deuteronomy 7.2, we read Israel's instructions concerning those inhabitants when it says, And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. God had given these people years and decades and decades in time to repent, but they did not. And so they were now going to experience God's judgment. So now, back to our story in Joshua 9. The Gibeonites had heard uh, what Joshua was doing to the residents of Canaan. 
And they knew that sooner or later, it was going to be their turn. And so they came up with a plan. They would pretend to be people from another land, not, not one of the inhabitants of Canaan, but from some distant place far, far away. And they would send a delegation of, of people in order to make an, a, a treaty with Israel. Now, they knew that Israel was not making treaties with anybody in the land, but their hope was, if we're from some way distant land, that they'll want to make a, a, a treaty with us. And, and, uh, and by the way, God did give Israel permission to make treaties in terms of peace and stuff with nations that were outside of the promised land. And, and so they could have done that. But, you know, for the Gibeonites to be convincing, uh, they needed to make a good show of it, and that's exactly what they did. Uh, They started off by creating a phony physical proof that they had traveled from this so-called distant country. I mean, look at what they did. Uh, We're picking up where we left off in verse 4. It says, And they took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins, worn-out and torn and mended, and worn-out patched sandals on their feet, and worn-out clothes on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and had become crumbled. I mean, this, this was Academy Award-winning type stuff that they were doing here, Right? I mean, you can just about picture them, you know, wearily trudging into camp. Here, you know, the, here's the lookouts at the camp at Gilgal, and here comes this group of people uh, coming in and saying, oh, man, we have traveled from a distant country. We've come so very far, and, and we have, we, we've, we've, we've braved the burning sands of the desert, and we've scaled the heights of mountains and passed through great valleys, but finally... We've made it to you guys. And Joshua and the leaders of Israel, they were fairly prudent guys. So they were a little bit skeptical about this. When the Gibeonites said that they wanted to make a treaty, well, some of Israel's elders responded by saying, wait a minute here, how do we know that you're not from one of the cities right here in Canaan? Because, you know, we're not allowed to make treaties with people here in Canaan. Um, But as we saw, of course, the Gibeonites were all prepared for that. Look at what they said in verse 12. This, our bread was warm when we took it from our provisions out of our houses on the day that we left to come to you. But now, behold, it is uh, become crumbled, dry and crumbled. Uh, These wineskins which were filled were new, and behold, they are torn. And these are clothes and sandals are worn out because of the very long journey. So, did you see what they did there to convince them? They lied. Hard to believe, isn't it? They, they lied. But they didn't just lie. They offered up convincing physical proof. They had dried out old moldy bread. They had worn out clothes and patched up wineskins. All this evidence was laid out there right before Israel's eyes. And beyond that, then they provided a good supporting story. Something that would sound convincing to Joshua and the elders. Back in in verse 8, Joshua had asked them point blank, Who are you and where do you come from? And listen to how they answered him. They said to him, Your servants have come from a very far country. They didn't name a country. They said a very far country because 
of the fame of the Lord your God. For we heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtoreth. Now see, this was a great tactic for them to use. They were appealing to Joshua's spiritual side by giving praise to his God. They said, hey, we're here. We have traveled all this distance because of how awesome your God is. And again, notice they, they started with that lie again, that the whole fabrication that they'd come from this very far country. But a lie isn't always just in what you say. You can also deceive by what you don't say. Notice that these guys were very careful not to mention a thing about Jericho or Ai. I mean, that would have given them away because those things had just happened and there's no way in those days that that news could have traveled to some distant country. So these guys were careful to talk about only things that had happened a long time ago. Oh yeah, we heard all about what your God did back there in Egypt. That was over 40 years ago. We heard how you had defeated the, the two kings of the Amorites, you know, Sihon and Og. Well, that happened during the wandering years in the wilderness. This delegation, they talked about those events, but spoke not a word about Jericho and Ai. They were deceiving Joshua by what they were leaving out as much as they were by what they were saying. And it was all part of the master plan to make it appear like they really were from this distant land. And it worked. Joshua and the leaders, you know, they checked out their old clothes and dried up bread. And they listened to their stories. And they decided, oh, they must be telling the truth. This deception works. So we read in uh, verse 15, Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. When it says swore an oath, that meant promised in God's name that they would do this. That's, that's what they did. Well, somehow... Three days later, Joshua and the people found out the truth that these Gibeonites were neighbors living in the promised land. So now they're all mad and, and they set out to go to that city and confront them. And it says all the people were grumbling against the leaders. They were grumbling against the leaders for two reasons. One, because they were stupid enough to make this treaty with these people that were in their own land, so they were grumbling against the, the leaders. But second reason is they were grumbling against them because they, that Joshua would not allow them to kill the Gibeonites even though they had been tricked into making this treaty. And now Joshua and Israel were stuck with these Canaanites living in the land with them. See, because Joshua and the leaders had sworn an oath, they had said in God's name that they would not harm and kill these uh, people, they were going to keep that promise. Uh, they had to because God told them they had to. But uh, Joshua did curse the people and, and make them slaves. So now we're going through all of this and you think, well, how does all of this apply to today 
since you know God hasn't called us to kick anybody out of their land and to execute His judgment upon these people. Again, we, we start with that reminder of where we are spiritually in this day and age. The Bible makes it very clear that we are soldiers. The Apostle Paul admonished us by saying, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And as a soldier, none of us are an R&R. We are all in the battle. And it's not a physical hand-to-hand combat battle. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the principalities, against the uh, world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual um, forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Each and every Christian is in a spiritual battle. And, And this story from Joshua is a great example of the way Satan likes to work in that battle. Now remember the chapter started, chapter 9 started with these five different kings or several kings combining their army. I mean, that was this visible, straightforward threat. But as it turns out, the real danger was not from them, but rather from some subtle trickery that came and presented itself as a friend, as someone to make an alliance with. And the reality is Satan often works in that same way. I mean, he may, you know, distract us with this person or that group over there that's shaking their fist at God and defying him and looks like the visible enemy and he can get all our attention and discussion focused on that, right? And all the while, the real danger may be the person that kind of sidles up next to you and says, hey, let's hang out together. You and me, we're on the same side. I mean, I like your God. You're no danger from me. It's all lies and deceptions from the enemy of our souls. And the real question is, how do you find out about that subtle trickery before you get trapped like Israel did? Because you see, Joshua and the elders, they asked all the right questions, right? They were skeptical at the, at, right up from the front and skeptical at all the right points. They used their mind and their eyes to check out the evidence. But the evidence told them one thing when the truth lay in completely opposite direction. See, the key to Israel's failure is found in one simple line in verse 14. Verse 14 describes where the leaders of Israel were checking out the evidence, right? It says, so the men of Israel took some of their provisions. They were checking it all out thoroughly. But it finishes by saying, and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. They used the power of observation and plenty of reason and logic. See, the problem wasn't that they didn't think. The problem was... They didn't pray. They didn't seek God and His wisdom. You know, we have a proverb here in America that says, seeing is believing. You know, that's nothing new, right? That's exactly what Joshua and the, and the elders did. But the reality is, 
that saying is simply not true. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't use our brains and our logic. I mean, God gave us the power uh, to think and to reason for a purpose, right? I mean, you take something out of the fridge and you notice all kinds of green stuff growing all over it and your nose gives you a certain indication of the lack of freshness of this thing. And, and it's good for you to let that intellect and reason to kick in and say, you know, I probably better not eat this uh, or I'm going to get sick. You know, I, I understand we, we need to do that. But the point I'm making today is that in life, we need to understand and recognize the truth that there is both a material reality and a spiritual reality to things that are going on. And because of that reality, because there's a spirituality, your mind and your intellect and the powers of observation are not enough. Yes, they're useful, but it's not enough. When it comes to this life and the decisions we need to make, we need to rely on something more than what our brains can supply. We need the wisdom of God. And Joshua blew it because he didn't seek the counsel of God. And in the spiritual realm of this life, we have a powerful, malicious enemy who is bent on destruction. And his favorite M.O. is to lie and to deceive. And if all you use is your eyes and your logic and your reason to make decisions, you're going to be deceived. When it comes to making decisions about the future, about relationships, especially marriage relationship, or raising your children, or alliances with other people in business or organizations, or who to fellowship with, or priorities in use of your time, your energy, your, your finances, and on and on, all, all these decisions we have to make, they go on. These all have a spiritual component to them. And if we want to make the best decisions, the right decisions, then we must seek the counsel of the Lord in all of them. And fortunately, we have His Word, the Bible, which gives us guidance and answers for many of the questions which we will have to face. And beyond that, we have the gift and the resource of prayer. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And please understand that that time of need, that prayer for wisdom is not essential or is essential not only when we are confused or in doubt. That's what we tend to think. Oh man, I just don't know what to do. I'm all confused. I don't know what's going on. I better seek God in prayer. Guess what? Joshua wasn't confused. He wasn't in doubt. It all looked so reasonable to him. We need to seek God in His wisdom, not only when we're confused and in doubt, we need it all the time, even when we may feel confident in the evidence we see in front of us and, and, and what's going on. Because the reality is, the evidence doesn't always lead us to the truth. And we desperately need God's wisdom in all matters of life. Joshua didn't have that wisdom because he didn't ask. 
James 1.5 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and he it will be given to him. We need that wisdom, even if we don't think we do or realize we do. Joshua didn't think he needed it, so he didn't ask. And three days later, he found out the error of his ways. Three days it took him to find out he was wrong in a lifetime to live with the consequences. That's how important this issue is. Now, can and, and does God forgive when, when we blow it by not seeking His wisdom? Well, yes. Oh, he, for sure. That's, that's a wonderful thing about God. He certainly does. Joshua was forgiven and God used him mightily in the days to come, but that didn't change the fact that he and all Israel had to live with the consequences of that decision. And when we fail to consult God in all the matters of life, we are often compelled to live with the fallout. And next week, we're actually going to see how some of the consequences ended up affecting uh, Israel. But for today, I want to end with just a couple of important reminders. Uh, having a son, as, you know, Zachary, who likes to do magic tricks, I know how easy it is to deceive people when you set out with that intent and purpose. And the truth is, we have an enemy who has the intent and purpose to deceive us. And he may appeal to our common sense. He may provide evidence that, oh, this is the right course of action. He may even give credit to what a great God we have. But we must never, never trust our own judgment in these matters. Lift your heart to God in prayer. Seek His wisdom and guidance, even when you think you know what's going on. Because the path to faith and blessing just might be in the opposite direction from what seems to be right in our eyes. And one final thought. Perhaps you find yourself in a position like Joshua where you've made a poor decision in the past, you didn't seek God's counsel, and now you're living with the consequences and you're thinking, oh man, it's too late for me, I've blown it, and and now I'm just stuck with these consequences the rest of my life, and there's nothing left for me. Hey, I want you to know we... We may lose a battle, we, we all do at times, but the war can still be won. Thank God that He is able to overcome even our mistakes and sins and cause even those consequences to be turned to blessing uh, through Him. Uh, the Gibeonites ended up serving in the temple of God. And many of them became allies and even brothers in God. So don't allow Satan to take a failure and drag you down and keep you down. You may have stumbled badly in some skirmish, but the war's not over yet. And God is greater than your mistakes. Let's pray. Father God, we are in trouble in this life if we do not realize that we have an enemy who wants to deceive us. He'll use religious things. He'll use good-sounding things. He'll use people to try to trick us 
into making alliances that take our allegiance away from the Lord. So Father God, we pray that you would give us wisdom. Help us not to be ignorant of the schemes of Satan. Remind us that we need to come to you in prayer in all instances, as in all areas, so that we can receive that wisdom from you to make the right and good decisions throughout life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.